The Fourth Watch starts now. You're listening to Omega Frequency with BDK on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to a special frequency flashback edition of Omega Frequency. This is your host, BDK. Today we investigate how the followers of Lucifer hope to establish a fourth right so that the Antichrist can be revealed. Welcome to another episode of Omega Frequency, everyone. Omega Frequency is dedicated to investigating Bible prophecy, encouraging the remnant bride of Christ, and proclaiming the return of Yeshua the Messiah as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, then thank you so much for taking the time to download this week's episode. I hope what you hear will bless you. And if you're a returning listener, then thank you so much for coming back and supporting this podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can listen to new episodes when they air on Mondays. And you can do that by subscribing for absolutely free on iTunes. Or you can also listen on demand anytime you want by visiting our podcast archives over at OmegaFrequency.com. And we are also blessed to be part of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. If you visit FourthWatchRadio.com, you'll be able to check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical perspective. And speaking of the fourth watch, man, I just want to say thank you one more time to Justin Fall, my dear brother, man. You've been such a blessing. When you opened up your network to the frequency and to myself, we gained a lot of new listeners in the process. And a lot of these new listeners are writing in saying that they're new first-time listeners And they have some very cool, encouraging feedback. And they also had some very good questions. And there were like a lot of people who heard me on previous episodes of The Fourth Watch, right? I was a guest on Justin's show for a while. And I've been co-hosting episodes of The Remnant Revolution with Justin. And a lot of you guys know who I am, kind of like what I believe. You kind of know what I'm into and what I'm all about. But you hadn't checked out my podcast yet. And then you were like, whoa, man. Omega Frequency on the fourth watch feed. We get it now every Monday. It just shows up in our feed, man. So we we, we checked it out. We listened, man, and we dug it. Please tell us a little bit about this podcast and what kind of stuff we can expect to hear on it. So instead of sending out show descriptions to each and every single person, I'm just going to kind of address what you'll hear on Omega Frequency up front. And then I'll do just a very brief, frequently asked question sort of deal at the end. And then we'll just kind of move on into the content of this show. So what can you expect from Omega Frequency? Well, if you tune into Omega Frequency, you're generally going to hear three types of shows. If it's the first week of the month, you're going to be listening to a series entitled Ready, With an answer. Now, this series is actually co-hosted by Phil Baker with me, and we dedicate the whole episode to answering your listener questions on a wide 
variety of biblical subjects. And if we get a lot of questions, it might actually carry over into a second bonus episode the following week. Um, You'll also get to hear episodes where I interview guests. Uh, We may be discussing a very specific topic when I bring on a guest. Or it might be that I'm just letting that person share their testimony of how they came to know Christ and how they're using their talents now to advance the kingdom of God. Or you might hear an episode where it's just me and I'm investigating a certain topic or giving my opinion on a certain topic as it relates to Bible prophecy or current events. And finally, there are going to be special monthly episodes entitled Bride Boot Camp. And these are going to be monthly teaching lessons that focus on training the remnant bride of Christ to live spirit-filled life in light of Christ's soon return. Now, the very first episode of Bride Boot Camp is going to air next Monday. And that episode is going to focus on one of the key things that Christ expects from his church in this prophetic hour. So that's what you can generally expect to hear if you tune in to an episode of Omega Frequency. Now, let's just hit a few frequently asked questions. I get a lot of questions on how long have you been doing a podcast and where can I find some of your previous episodes because they're not on the fourth watch feed. Well, there's a reason why it's not on the fourth watch feed. The back catalog that is, is because we've been releasing episodes for way over two years. There is a lot of content that we put out. So it just wouldn't be wise to blow up the space for the available content on the fourth watch feed. I mean, there's like close to 90 episodes in our back catalog. So if you want to check any of those episodes out, the best thing to do is just visit omegafrequency.com and then click on the navigational link entitled podcast. And there you'll be able to just scroll through all the previous episodes and their descriptions. I was also asked about how someone can participate in the episodes where we answer listener questions. Well, generally midway through the month, I will announce the subject that we will be taking questions about for the next month's episode. And I usually announce the subject on omegafrequency.com. And you can just click on the link entitled Ask a Question. And there you'll see that month's subject up for discussion. And if you have a question on that subject, then all you have to do is just use the form on the page and then you'll be able to submit your question right from there. I also announced the subject up for discussion on my Facebook page. And if you go to my Facebook page, you can just leave your question in the comment section of the original post. And if you don't know where to find me on Facebook, you can find me on Facebook under the name Yeshua Wins. Let's see here. Um, Is there a limit on how many questions we can ask? Yes, there is. Please try to limit yourself to one good question. That way we can answer more questions from everyone. And if you have a second question, you may ask it. But depending upon how many questions we receive that month, we may not have time to answer the second question. We might save the second question for a future episode. And finally, one of the questions I've been getting asked 
actually for a couple of months now from a wide variety of listeners, not just new listeners, is are we planning on doing anything cool for episode 100? Because we're, we're coming up on episode 100. And do I have anything really cool planned for it? Well, yeah, I do. I don't want to let too much out of the bag, but I do have some cool things planned leading up to celebrate the 100th episode, including some pretty cool stuff the week of the 100th episode. I'll be doing some cool stuff to promote episode 100, and that I'll announce a little bit later as we get closer to that episode. But as far as the episode itself, I'm going to be doing a special episode devoted to a very heavily requested subject. Now, if you've been listening to The Frequency for the last couple of years, you know that I've been investigating subjects like the Antichrist, Rome, the false prophet, Satan's false kingdom of Babylon, the uniting of all religions into like a one world uh, religion, for lack of a better term. Um, I've been investigating false teachings, false teachings of dominionism, some of just the crazy new age things that are making their way into the church, just a lot of general shenanigans, right? In episode 100, I'm going to attempt to tie a lot of these threads together. I'm going to attempt to take a lot of these pieces that we've been discussing over the last couple of years and put them into one picture, right? I want to try to paint a compelling picture on just how all these things relate to each other. And then to close it out, I am going to offer a likely biblical scenario on how the false prophet will rise to power and then how he will coronate the Antichrist as the false Messiah and what that will mean to the body of Christ in that moment. This special investigative episode will be a fully documented episode, which will include quotes, probably sound clips, and a lot of research, and I'm super excited to put it out. Now, the question that I'm going to get is, wait a minute, You've been discussing these pieces now for the last couple of years. I'm a new listener, man. I don't have time to catch up on all of this stuff so that episode 100 makes sense. Well, I got you covered. Do not worry. I am going to be bringing in some special guests leading up to this episode. We're going to discuss some of these key foundational topics, and it will kind of be like informational building blocks, right, that, that will bring everyone up to speed on some of these important puzzle pieces information-wise so that if you're new, episode 100 is still going to make a lot of sense. And the very first key to understanding this whole episode 100 and how the Antichrist is going to rise to power is to understand the kingdom the followers of Lucifer have been building for him so that he can rule from it and how close we are to that being implemented. So some of the big key questions would be like, how are they implementing this end times kingdom? How are they conditioning us to receive a global ruler? What part does end times prophecy play into this battle between good and evil? These are the questions that we will be investigating today. And to do this, I'm going to pull a classic episode 
from our archives that aired on February 1st of 2015. And this contains their blueprint for the Fourth Reich or their false millennial kingdom. And I'm sure a lot of people have not heard this episode, but when you hear it, you will be blown away because you are going to hear their plan from their own lips with your own ears. And by the time it's done, you will have a better understanding of how this is all going to play out. Now, if you want to fully investigate some of the things that you hear in this episode, because you're going to hear a lot of documented evidence in this episode, the show notes to this episode are going to contain links to all of this information if you want to dive deeper into the subject. So visit the show notes for this episode for those clickable links. Now, without any further ado, the road to episode 100 begins right now as we flash back to episode 16, The Rise of the Fourth Reich. Enjoy, everyone. We open this week's podcast with this headline from USA Today. Obama marks Holocaust Remembrance Day. The article goes on to say this, quote, President Obama marked International Holocaust Remembrance Day on Tuesday with a statement on our renewed recognition of the value and dignity of every person. The day demands from us courage to protect the persecuted and to speak out against bigotry and hatred, Obama said. The president also said this anniversary is an opportunity to reflect on the progress that we have made by confronting this terrible chapter in human history and on our continuing efforts to end genocide, unquote. Now, it can both be a good thing and a bad thing to set aside a day to remember the time when Hitler ruled Germany and established his Third Reich. It's good because it brings international attention to the fact that bigotry and hatred actually cause these acts of genocide. But it's bad if it doesn't remind us to be vigilant and to fight against the things that actually inspired that genocide. On this special episode, I want to look at what led to the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich. And do the powers and the doctrines that brought Hitler to power still exist today? And might they be used to usher in a new dictator and the rise of a fourth and final Reich? I hope to connect the dots from the rise of evolution to the eugenic movement of both the past and the present. And then I will establish what was the driving force behind Hitler's beliefs and actions. And finally, I will show how these beliefs are being used today by the followers of Lucifer to bring forth the Antichrist. Now, I will do this through three means. I will use quotes from the people involved in this subject. I will use sound clips from news stories, documentaries, and lectures. And most importantly, I will use Bible verses that shed prophetic light on these subjects. 
If you would like to research any of these sources further, you can find links to them in the show notes. Now, before we go any further, let me state up front that we are going to be talking about some controversial subjects and some things that normal prophecy podcasts might shy away from. But these issues are important, and they will have an impact upon us in the near future, especially as the tribulation approaches. The purpose of this podcast has never been to say you must believe our version of the end-time scenarios or else. Hopefully it will inspire the desire to inspect all the claims of Bible prophecy and not just the obvious ones. I hope you will keep an open mind and bear with me to the very end of this podcast because I hope to logically build a case about the rise of the Antichrist and the very real danger his kingdom may possess. Yeshua plainly warns us in Matthew 24:22 that unless the days of the Antichrist kingdom be shortened, that no flesh would be saved. My ultimate goal is to expose the works of darkness and bring them to the light. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, if we are going to start talking about the Fourth Reich and the rise of the Antichrist, we need to start connecting the dots at the very beginning. Revelation 17.10-11 says this, And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goeth into perdition. Now what this basically means is that John is predicting that eight kings will rise to power throughout the course of human history. And these kings have been called by different names by commentators. Some people call them the mystery kings. Some people call them the god kings. But the point is, is that these kings are unique because they have established their kingdoms through both political power and religious power. These kings have always persecuted or ruled over God's people, while at the same time promoting the power of his own race and people. Now Nero is a great example of a God king. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire, but yet he was also worshipped as God. And everyone who was not a Roman citizen were second-class citizens with very little rights, and he ruled over God's chosen people with an iron fist. Now, the first mystery king was Nimrod. He was the original ruler of what many people would call the first New World Order. And he did the following. He became a mighty one, a Rephaim, a type of genetic superman, a crossbreed of the fallen angels mentioned in Genesis 6. And he did this by corrupting himself through pagan black magic rituals. He formed the city of Babylon, which was built to unite the people as one people, to keep them from being scattered abroad, even though Yahweh gave them specific instructions to migrate out and repopulate the earth after the flood. He also built the Tower of Babel, which was a tower used for astrology and occult worship. The tower's goal was to reach into the heavens and serve as a stargate or portal for the entrance of fallen angels. For an in-depth look at the Genesis 6, 
Watcher Angels, and Satan's Plan to Corrupt Human Genetics, check out podcast episode 8 entitled The Cyber Tree of Good and Evil. And to learn more about Nimrod and what truly happened at the Tower of Babel, check out podcast episode number 10 entitled The Trojan Horse. Now let's go back to the eight kings mentioned in Revelation 17. Nimrod was the first one. The next one was the king of Egypt. Now there's been much discussion about which king that that was, but most people think it was the pharaoh who was around at the time of Moses. From there, the list of kings goes from Nebuchadnezzar to the king of the Medo-Persian Empire to Alexander the Great. Now those were the first kings that John said had fallen because they were not in existence at the time where he was writing the book of Revelation. Now Nero was the sixth king that John says is, meaning Nero is ruling during the time when John wrote the book of the Revelations. And John says that the seventh king is not yet come, but he continues for a short space. Now what this means is that the seventh king would rule next in the future, but he would only be in power for a short time and his rule would not be fully realized. But then the eighth king would come. And this king is the beast or the Antichrist, and he is of the seventh. Now, this means that the Antichrist or the eighth king's rule would be built upon the same foundations, methods, and doctrines of the seventh king. Now, if you want to find out who the seventh king was, you have to look once again at the criteria of these kings. The first one is that they have to attempt to promote their own race of people. But at the same time, they conquer or oppress God's chosen people. And this king will have to attempt to rule both as an emperor and spiritual leader. Now, there is only really one candidate in the future for the seventh king, and he is the foreshadow of the Antichrist, and that was Adolf Hitler. Now, the eighth and final king has one very unique quality that sets him apart from all the other kings. And it gives him a supernatural occult power that has not been seen since the time of Nimrod. Because while all the other kings worship the religion of Nimrod, Lucifer has special plans for his Antichrist. Now here is a clip explaining how Nimrod became a god that was worshipped by all the other empires. Around 2800 BC, there lived a hunter named Nimrod in Babylon which was located between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Nimrod became arrogant and incited people to build the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Such deeds of Nimrod that were against God has continued even after Nimrod had died. Semiramis, Nimrod's wife, insisted that Nimrod became the sun god. She cut Nimrod's dead body into pieces and sent them to each tribe of Babylon. People regarded the place where a part of Nimrod was buried as sacred. She also claimed that Nimrod was reincarnated as her son. The sun god Nimrod was reincarnated as my son Tammuz. He who believes 
and follows to Moose, follows Nimrod. As Semiramis ruled over Babylon in place of her young son Tammuz, she maneuvered people into worshiping her. Monuments of Semiramis carrying her child Tammuz in her arms were set up all over Babylon, along with various images symbolizing the sun god. The sun worship and the mother-child worship, which was a scheme devised by Semiramis, put down roots as a religion of Babylon. Idolatry stemmed from Babylon spread to many countries after the Tower of Babel collapsed. It is because when the Babylonians were scattered over the whole world, they brought the sun worship and the mother-child worship. The sun worship and the mother-child worship were assimilated into the cultures and religions of many countries, and they came to have various forms and names. Nimrod, the sun god, was known as Mithra in Persia, Sol in Rome, Ra or Horus in Egypt, and Apollo in Greece. Semiramis and Tammuz, who were the start of the mother-child worship, was called Isis and Horus, Venus and Dionysus, Diana and Attis, and Astaroth and Tammuz, respectively. Besides these, the image of goddess, who is holding a baby in her arms, was venerated in many countries of the world. So you see, when Nimrod died, his religion spread through the tribes that God scattered at the Tower of Babel. Now, each culture worshipped him by many different names. But if we go back to Revelation 17, we will see the final thing about this Antichrist that makes him unique. Verse 8 says this, And the beast which thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. Now, in this passage, the beast or the Antichrist is possessed by a demonic power that was, meaning it existed in the past before the time of John, which is not, which means that it is currently not in power now at the time of John, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, meaning the spirit will once again come into power in the future. But who is this demonic spirit that will come from the bottomless pit? Revelations 9:18 answers that question. And they had a king over them, which was the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now Apollyon is another name for the god Apollo which the readers of Revelation would have recognized as the God currently being worshipped. Now, who was Nimrod in the Greek religion? Well, as we previously learned, it was Apollo. So while all the other kings may have worshipped the religion of Nimrod, the Antichrist will be possessed by the actual same spirit that originally possessed Nimrod. And this Antichrist will have deep, dark magic at his disposal. You see, Lucifer's plan has always been a new world Babylon order, a world empire based off of the occult and the lie that he told Eve in the Garden of Eden, which was, ye shall be as gods. Now that plan was almost realized at the Tower of Babel, but God shut it down. 
However, Satan has been trying to rebuild it ever since. Now, the first dot I want to connect is this. Before Lucifer could begin the final stages of recreating this new Babylonian kingdom, he was awaiting the ones who originally helped him form it, the very same watcher angels who came to the earth in Genesis 6. Now, the book of Enoch documented that these fallen angels interacted with mankind. And while the book of Enoch is not canonized in the Bible, it is in the Ethiopian Bible, and it was found next to the scriptures in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this book was accepted as historical by Jewish historians. And this book is even quoted in our Bible by Peter and Jude, the brother of Yeshua, and this was quoted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when it is quoted in our Bible, it is always on the subject of what these fallen angels did. Now, these fallen angels are very evil and very powerful. So it's very important that we need to take these accounts of the watcher angels very seriously. Now, First Enoch 10.12 tells us that one of the judgments these watcher angels faced was that they were to be bound for 70 generations in the abyss for their crimes. But then it says that when the end times begin, they are going to be released. Now, Psalms 90 verse 10 tells us that a biblical generation is 70 years. Now, if these watcher angels were bound around 3000 BC or at around the time that Noah lived. And if you take 70 generations and multiply them by 70 years, you get 4,900 years, which would bring the release of these watcher angels close to the 19th century going into the beginning of the 20th century. And if it's true that these watcher angels were released at this point in history, then we should begin to see a revival of certain things that happened in the days of Noah. Now, according to the book of Enoch, these certain things would include genetic experimentation, the killing of less inferior races to bring about the Nephilim supermen, channeled mystic occult teachings that center around psychic meditations, astrology, numerology, runeology, alchemy, and because these watcher angels specifically taught warfare and the art of warfare to mankind, it would stand to reason that the art of warfare would also increase, and so would the technology that fueled it. And the final hallmark of their return would be the rise of a spiritually united kingdom, just like Nimrod's Babylon. And if these watchers were truly released, and it did happen the way it says in the book of Enoch and the Bible, it would then usher in the end time scenario that Yeshua described in Matthew 24, verse 7, where he says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So let's start with the first hallmark of Hitler's Third Reich, and that's the rise of racial eugenics and genocide. Now, the foundation of the eugenics movement didn't start with Hitler. It actually started with the theory that there were certain races that were inferior to the evolved man, and that in order for the evolved man, who was genetically fit to survive, limited resources must not be wasted. Now, this theory gained widespread acceptance when Charles Darwin published his book entitled On the Origin of Species. But what most people aren't aware of is that Charles Darwin's book originally had this full title, and it was called On the Origin of Species 
by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. And it wasn't until the sixth edition that it was changed to the origin of species. And now with the groundwork laid for the spread of race-based eugenics, America implemented it in quick fashion. Let's listen to a clip from a documentary by Alex Jones entitled Endgame. In 1924, Hitler pins Mein Kampf or My Struggle and credits U.S. eugenicist as his inspiration. Hitler even wrote a fan letter to American eugenicist and conservationist Madison Grant, calling his race-based book, The Passing of the Great Race, his Bible. Hitler developed the plan for mass extermination of the Jews and what he called other sub-races, as well as the handicapped from Grant. By 1927, eugenics hit the mainstream. The so-called science was aggressively pushed through contests at schools, churches, and at state fairs. Churches competed in contests with big cash prizes to see who could best implement eugenics into their sermons. Major denominations then tell Americans that Jesus is for eugenics. That same year in the United States, more than 25 states passed forced sterilization laws, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of brutal sterilization policies. When Hitler came to power in 1933, one of his first acts was to pass national eugenics laws modeled after laws in the United States. By 1936, Germany had become the world leader in eugenics for taking effective actions to sterilize and euthanize hundreds of thousands of victims. The big three of American eugenics, Davenport, Laughlin, and Goethe, were dispatched by the Rockefellers to Germany, where they advised the Nazis on the fine-tuning of their extermination system. Now, it was Hitler's obsession with America's eugenics program that led to his genetic experimentation on people and all of the Nazi surgeries. Because in his mind, these inferior races were not going to use up all the precious resources that the Germans needed in order to survive. Instead, these inferior races would actually become the resources that Hitler used to carry on his genetic experimentation in his quest to bring about the Nazi Superman. So I really have to wonder, have we truly learned any lessons from International Holocaust Remembrance Day? Or are we still practicing a form of eugenics and population control today, just under more modern names and terms? And I wonder if President Obama, our very first black president, champion of Planned Parenthood, truly understands Planned Parenthood's racist beginnings. Because Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, had this to say about race-based population control. In Woman, Morality, and Birth Control, she writes this, quote, Birth control must ultimately lead to a cleaner race, unquote. And in a 1939 letter written to Dr. Clarence Gramble, she says this, quote, We should hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities, 
because the most successful educational approach to the Negro is through religious appeal. And we don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it occurs to any more of their rebellious members, unquote. And her racist practices are still being played out today. In her autobiography, Margaret Sanger wrote about a speech she gave in 1926 at a Ku Klux Klan rally in Silver Lake, New Jersey. The Planned Parenthood founder bragged about the fact that afterward, she was invited by 12 other Klan chapters to speak at their events. At about the same time the American Birth Control League was changing its name to Planned Parenthood, a lot of books and reports began coming out that attempted to put a happy face on eugenics. And many of them were written by people that were associated with Planned Parenthood. The strategy here was obvious. Since the Nazis had turned eugenics into a four-letter word, the American eugenics movement decided it was time to lay low. So most of their writings during this time period downplayed the role of eugenics and couched their agenda in terms of helping the African-American. Perhaps the best example of this is a 1,500-page book by eugenicist Gunnar Myrdal called An American Dilemma, The Negro Problem in Modern Democracy. Commonly, it is considered a great misfortune for America that Negro slaves were ever imported. The presence of Negroes in America today is usually considered a plight of the nation. Chapter 7, page 167. All white Americans agree that if the Negro is to be eliminated, he must be eliminated slowly so as not to hurt any living individual Negroes. Chapter 7, page 168. The only way possible of decreasing Negro population is by means of controlling fertility. Chapter 7, page 170. Birth control facilities could be extended relatively more to Negroes than to whites, since Negroes are more concentrated in the lower income and education classes. Chapter 7, page 176. One of the places where government money has been used to advance the eugenics agenda has been in the public school system. Although government-funded population control programs can be found in white schools, the evidence is that they are significantly more likely to be targeted at black schools. One example of this was seen in 1986, when it was discovered that Illinois public schools were not only distributing birth control to children, but that every one of the 50 facilities involved were in minority neighborhoods. When this information was made public, a local African-American pastor organized a campaign to stop the program. Reverend Hiram Crawford labeled the project genocide, saying that the obvious goal was to go after the Hispanic and black population. That same pattern was also found in Maryland in the 1990s. Even though the state's teen pregnancy rate was higher among white students than black students, when the contraceptive device Norplant was introduced, it was selectively marketed to children as young as 13 in predominantly black schools in Baltimore. The result was that of the first 350 girls implanted at a local middle school, 345 were African American. Then, when Norplant was approved for general distribution, of the first 100 schools selected, all 100 were in minority neighborhoods. 
What the heck, man? 13-year-old girls in middle school? I mean, that ought to make your blood boil. And you know what else? I would wish that someone would have the guts to get on national television and during a live interview with our president, ask him how he can support Planned Parenthood when they were responsible for the death and sterilization of the Negro population. Now, that would be some can't-miss television. But, you know, Obama has other things to worry about, like the immediate threat to our national security called climate change. After all, it made the doomsday clock move closer to midnight. So unless we remove the CO2 carbon-based emissions all the way down to zero, we are all in big trouble. But fear not. The UN has some of the best minds working on it. Minds like Bill Gates, who has an equation that might help solve the problem. This equation has four factors, a little bit of multiplication. So you've got a thing on the left, CO2, that you want to get to zero. And that's going to be based on the number of people, the services each person's using on average, the energy on average for each service, and the CO2 being put out uh, per unit of energy. So let's look at each one of these and see how we can get this down to zero. Uh, probably one of these numbers is going to have to get pretty near to zero. Now uh, that's back from high school algebra, but let's, let's take a look. Uh, first we've got population. Now the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. But there we see an increase of uh, about 1.3. The second factor is the services we use. This encompasses everything. The food we eat, clothing, TV, uh, heating. These are very good things. Uh, getting rid of poverty means providing these services to almost everyone on the planet. And it's a great thing uh, for this number to go up. Now, he's actually talking about killing a bunch of people, and there are people in the audience laughing like it's no big thing, like silly humans always breeding, using too many resources. But according to Bill Gates, the number one thing that people are not using enough of is technology. And according to him, that needs to go up because that's how he makes his money. I mean, that's how poverty is eradicated and one global people are formed because they are plugged into the future. You see, according to the Georgia Guidestones, the Ten Commandments to a New Age of Reason states these first two goals. Number one, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Number two, guide reproduction wisely. And in order for that to happen, a lot of people have to die. And I bet Bill Gates isn't raising his hand and volunteering for the position. So the question is, who decides who's going to live and die? Who are the ones whose reproduction needed to be guided wisely to sustain this population? And what does Bill Gates use as a guideline when it comes to his version of population control? One issue that really grabbed me as, as urgent uh, was, were issues related to population, uh, reproductive health. But did you come to reproductive issues as an intellectual when I was growing up, my parents were always involved in various uh, uh, volunteer things. My dad was uh, head of Planned Parenthood. And 
it was very controversial uh, to be involved with that. Oh, okay. Now it makes sense. Planned Parenthood. So not only would he like to control the birth rate of certain types of people, but why stop there? When the elderly, the crippled, and the sick are also a waste on our resources, our money, and our government health care costs. That's a trade-off society is making because of very, very high medical costs and a lack of willingness to say, you know, is spending a million dollars on that last three months of life for that patient, would it be better not to lay off the, those 10 teachers and to make that trade-up in medical costs? But that's called the death panel, uh, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. So you, of course, well, that's making... an interesting thing you just said, which is just the last three months in life for one person or something, because we haven't had a discussion of how to allocate that money. It means we lay off three teachers to do so. Now these death panel discussions may not officially be happening in government, but they are most definitely being discussed in the universities where our future leaders who will serve in government will come from. When I was a young preacher, I went with members of our congregation down to our state capitol, and next to the state capitol was the state university, and next to that was a town square, where on any given Saturday, you could find large groups of local students congregating. So we took giant double-sided signs with pictures of animals on one side who were being tortured and killed in experiments, and the other side had pictures of babies on them. Now, I started preaching about how it was evil to kill animals in the name of greed and convenience. And before long, we had assembled a fairly large group of socially minded students, and they were loudly cheering us on. And I stopped and I asked them, can anyone tell me the mammal that is killed the most, the one who is in the greatest danger? And they started shouting out things like monkeys, dogs, cats, and even bunnies. But I said, no, no, no. Do you want to know who they really are? And at that point, the cheering began to rise to a fever pitch and they started yelling tell us tell us and at that moment that they started asking we flipped our signs around and we showed them the pictures of the dead babies and suddenly it got really quiet and you could see like the anger in their eyes start to rise because they realized that they had been duped and that their liberal hypocrisy was being used against them. And they didn't like that. So that quietness didn't last long and they became really, really angry with us. And literally anything that they could get their hands on, they started throwing at us and we kind of started like a mini riot. So instead of doing the safe thing and stop, I kept on preaching. But the one thing that I will remember forever is when I said, where will this stop? First, we kill the unborn. How long will it be before we start killing the elderly? And then I saw the most insane, unreal thing happen. In unison, this large group actually started jumping up and down while chanting, kill the old people, kill the old people kill the old people. And they chanted that in unison for almost a full minute. 
And I thought to myself, is this what the Roman Colosseum looked like when they were chanting to kill the Christians? But this is the culture of death that exists today. It's the same culture that existed in Nazi Germany. And Hitler didn't wait till he became the leader to convince the people that racial cleansing was okay. It was already accepted by the time that he took power. And it will be accepted by the new transhumanist generation also. But they will be the ones who will truly unlock the full potential of eugenics once and for all. A major fear is that cloning will reintroduce eugenics and human genetic engineering into our society. The idea of an inheritable genetic engineering is that you would put a piece of DNA, a new gene, into an early embryo. That individual then would grow and develop and carry on with that particular new genetic trait and even pass it on to future generations. Cloning comes into this picture because it allows you to make many, many copies, many, many embryos that then you can test out this new genetic engineering on. Cloning and eugenics are closely linked. The word eugenics means good genes. Cloning will be used to make embryos that are composed of the good genes. Now, what, what we know from history is that whenever we've tried to do this, we haven't chosen very well, that we've chosen based on our own biases, our biases around appearance, our biases around race, were at the heart of the eugenics movement of the last century. This was what the Germans did, um, and, but it wasn't their idea. They took this from America and from the, the UK beginning of the 20th century. Instead of sterilizing people so they can't produce, we're now going to produce the embryo that is the right one in the first place. Next, we will take a look at what was the doctrine behind Hitler's rise to power. But first, let's take a short break. Now more than ever, it is important to be caught up on all the headlines that fulfill Bible prophecy. Stay informed. Follow us on Twitter at Omega Frequency, on Tumblr, or like us on Facebook. You can find links to all of our social media accounts on the homepage of our website at OmegaFrequency.com. We search the web daily, posting the latest headlines for you in real time, updating our social media feeds every few minutes. This is part of our ministry to you. As believers in Yeshua the Messiah, we understand that no matter how dark the days may become, we don't have to be lost in confusion. For we are the children of light, and the day of his return does not have to catch us unaware, because we can know the signs of his coming. Nazis involved in eugenics and racism, but they were also involved in many inhumane experiments in their race to breed the Aryan Superman. And they had also learned the art of war in new and terrible ways. Their military was a mix of new strategies that no one had seen before and superior advanced weaponry that was light years ahead of anything their enemies possessed. And when the war was over, Nazi scientists 
doctors, and engineers were brought into the United States to work for the government in what was to be known as Operation Paperclip. But why in the midst of Hitler's reign, in the midst of this war, did he spend so much money and so much time and energy to find ancient Egyptian and Babylonian religious artifacts, artifacts that proposedly held ancient mystical powers that would help him build the Third Reich or the 1,000-year millennial reign of the Superman. To understand what made Hitler the man that he was, you have to understand his heart. And his heart was filled with black magic and the occult. You see, Hitler believed in spirit guides that said that they once existed in ancient civilizations and that they would share with the German race the knowledge that these artifacts once held, the artifacts that they once used to build their civilization, they would teach the Germans how to use once again to take over the world. But this idea of spirit guides and ancient civilizations was not a new concept in Germany at this time, because at the turn of the 20th century, there was an explosion of the occult or something new called spiritism. And this was a revival of the secret doctrines that helped lay the foundation for Hitler to rise to power. And the prophetess of this divine revelation and divine doctrine was Helena Blavatsky. And not only did she have a major impact in the world of the occult, but she had a major influence on the life of Adolf Hitler. Here's a clip explaining that influence, and it is taken from the documentary Blood Sacrifice, Occult Secrets of Adolf Hitler. In 1888, Helena Blavatsky would write the book that will become the central source for Hitler on the origins of the Aryan race in her magnus opus, The Secret Doctrine, that would alter the course of history to this present day, the synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy. It was an influential example of the revival of interest in esoteric and occult ideas in the modern age in particular because of its claim to reconcile ancient Eastern wisdom with modern science. Hitler particularly found Blavatsky's teachings to be crucial to his satanic doctrines and was fascinated by Blavatsky's book. It was from this that he created the basis for his coming Holocaust. Her book covered topics such as the existence of Atlantis, extraterrestrial life forms, creation of animals by humans, a caste system of races, the importance of ancient alphabets such as runes in particular, the superiority of Aryans, the initiated version of astrology and astronomy, cosmic truths colored with pagan myth, and the occult significance of the swastika. To the Germans of the 1930s, the secret doctrine appeared to reconcile science and belief, nature and myth, and catalyzed a much older intellectual tradition. As in the secret doctrine itself, science and occultism lay happily side by side in a fetid embrace. So they saw the secret doctrine as something that made sense of the world. Madame Blavatsky uh, was a woman deeply involved in the occult who founded the Theosophical Society in, in about 1871 or 1872. And basically, she was very closely affiliated with the other occultists at that time. But her organization, Theosophy, certainly um, based upon her books, The Secret Doctrine, which she wrote several volumes. And The Secret Doctrine, if you read it, you understand that she was certainly 
a tool of Lucifer. She openly writes about how Lucifer was God, and that certainly, if you tapped into this source, there was tremendous power there that could alter your whole outlook on the world, and you'd get great wealth and power and fame, which she herself accomplished. Hitler kept a copy of Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine by his bedside ever since being introduced to its teachings by Dietrich Eckhart and Karl Haushofer. See, Helena was the one who taught that the swastika was the symbol of cosmic evolution, and she claimed that a supernatural spokesman from the lost city of Atlantis gave her this revelation knowledge. And according to historians like Socrates, Atlantis was a pre-flood society that was founded on the teachings and technology given to them by beings from the heavenly realm. Now, here is a summary of Helena Blavatsky's writings. She taught that there were angelic beings who came from space or the heavenly realms to earth. And through a combination of genetic experiments and sex magic, they tried to build a race of supermen and a race of giants. Now, these beings taught the mystical arts to people, and this ranged from anything from astrology to the art of war. And these angelic beings claimed that they had a master who was in control of them. Now, this angelic being who was their master was named Lucifer, but he was the good guy. He was the one trying to bring knowledge that would lead mankind to godhood, the same enlightenment Jehovah wanted to keep from them. And because this ancient society accepted these Luciferian doctrines, they possessed the key to all worldly power, wealth, and wisdom. But then Jehovah God got angry and destroyed Atlantis in a flood. But now these beings have returned once again to share the secrets of Atlantis with mankind. Now isn't that interesting? That's almost a play-by-play -play account of the days of Noah and the saga of the Watchers. Had these dangerous and evil beings finally returned 70 generations later as prophesied? Was the seventh king about ready to rise? And how did their teachings evolve into Nazism? Here's a clip from a National Geographic documentary entitled Hitler and the Occult. Living in London is a Russian aristocrat turned best-selling author named Madame Helena Blavatsky. In more than a thousand pages, Blavatsky rewrites the history of the world from the creation to the present. Her story is based on unconventional sources, Babylonian astrology, Egyptian hieroglyphics, and a mishmash of the occult. She's not making it up, but what's great about this kind of information. It has all the power of a lost great civilization, but the people who used to control this information and regulate it are all gone now. So it can mean whatever you need it to mean. It did. As Blavatsky tells it, giants from the lost continent of Atlantis produced a race of supermen, the Aryans. Blavatsky's book is mysticism masquerading as history, but it sells. Timing is everything, and a book challenging the standard version of history arrived at the right time. For nearly 2,000 years, the Bible was gospel truth. Then, Darwin challenges the very origins of history. New evidence of evolution shakes people's faith. 
the late 19th century was the heyday of a new kind of religion, spiritualism, based on the belief that the living could contact the dead. Spiritualism was not something that was on the fringes. By the time that Hitler was born, there was a new wave of spiritualism. A wave of palm reading and astrology, tarot cards and seances, with believers from Mary Lincoln to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, to an audience starving for fresh answers. Blavatsky's occult opus is a banquet. Blavatsky is important because of her showmanship, because occult traditions were by their very nature elite secret practices, but she tells the whole world about it. An Austrian writer and occultist named Guido von Liszt picks up Blavatsky's idea of an Aryan race. Now he takes this idea and he Germanizes it. The master race then becomes specifically identified with a kind of German racial destiny. Now in reality, the Aryans had nothing to do with the German race, but according to occult tradition, they were an ancient race of people unified by one certain type of language. And this language is vitally important to the occultist because they believe that words have creative powers. Blavatsky taught, quote, knowledge is the mystic power residing in sound, either in the mantras, chanted prayers, or incantations, and depending on the rhythm and the melody used, unquote. You see, the people led by Nimrod taught this at the Tower of Babel. They taught that Yahweh used words to create the world and that they could twist those words and use them for occultic purposes. You see, when God confused the languages and the words of the people at the Tower of Babel, he was doing a little bit more than just making it hard for people to communicate with each other so that they couldn't build something. Because it doesn't take a language for me to ask you for a hammer. I could just point to it. No, he was confusing a language used for the occult. And I find it very interesting that the Antichrist, who is possessed by the same spirit that possessed Nimrod, is called in the book of Daniel a king understanding dark sentences. Could this be the revival of this ancient Babylonian mystery language? By the time Hitler rose to power, these Aryans and the Aryans of their language became the German people. And that's the deceptive thing about these fallen angels. Throughout history, they have adapted their true nature to hide behind whatever is relevant to the current culture that they are deceiving. In Babylon, it was the religion of a genetically enhanced god-king named Nimrod. In Egypt, it was these half-human, half-animal god-creatures that we found on the walls of the pyramid. To the Aztecs, it was these winged serpent beings and their fascination with a lunar calendar. And in our society, it is a mixture of science fiction and sorcery i.e. space beings or ascended masters and the promise of eternal life through transhumanism. And now that the Aryan race had become the German race, this occultism evolved into what was called the Thule Party, a society that was based on black magic. And the thing that most people kind of gloss over is that Hitler wasn't always a master politician who one day morphed into 
this ruthless dictator. No, he was once a lowly German soldier who in his younger days was a homeless drug addict and artist. But over time, he evolved into the leader of the Nazi party. How did this happen? Well, one day he had an interaction with that occult society, the Thule Party. Let's go back to the documentary, Hitler and the Occult. A Thule member forms the Nazi forerunner, the German Workers' Party. One meeting becomes a crossroads of fate. The German army sends an embittered soldier to spy on the group. He kind of likes what he hears at this meeting. It's a strange mix of ideas about a German animating spirit. Some anti-Semitism, a little bit of anti-capitalism thrown in, a, a whole mishmash of ideas. He stops becoming a spy and decides that this is the perfect laboratory for him to experiment politically and socially with the ideas that he has for a greater Germany. Adolf Hitler, the spy, becomes German Workers' Party member 555. Soon after Hitler joins, the group renames itself the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Nazi for short. Among its leaders, Dietrich Eckhart. A journalist, drug addict, and occultist, Eckhart becomes the spiritual guru of the Nazi party. He takes Hitler under his wing and grooms him for power. Hitler was literally drinking in anti-Semitism under the pernicious influence of Dietrich Eckhart. He was Hitler's mentor. He was the person, I think more than any other, influenced Hitler at a very crucial part of Hitler's development. Eckhart very much wanted to cultivate this messianic notion in Hitler because he himself thought that thinking politically you needed in a powerful instrument, a lightning bolt. The occultist Eckhart was among the few to foresee Hitler's rise. Another is a popular astrologer who never even met Hitler, Elsbeth Ebertine. Amongst Hitler's enthusiastic female followers in Munich was a woman who in fact sent Ebertine at the date of Hitler's birth and asked Ebertine to make a prediction concerning this individual's future. He is destined to play a Führer role in future battles, and he is destined to sacrifice himself for the German nation. Also to face up to all circumstances, even when it is a matter of life and death. Ebertine's prediction eventually reaches Hitler in late 1923. So how did Hitler become German's messiah? He did this in the crucible of the occult, and he gained his power by drinking in black magic. He gave himself and his soul to hell. In Matthew 4, 8 through 9, we see that Yeshua is being tempted by Satan, and the passage says this, Again, the devil taketh him up to an exceedingly high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And he saith unto him, All these things I shall give thee, if thou wilt but fall down and worship me. Now notice Yeshua didn't dispute Lucifer's claims that the kingdoms of the world were currently under demonic dominion. 
But Yeshua never took Lucifer up on his offer. But there is coming a time when the Antichrist will take Lucifer up on that offer. And he will trade his soul for the kingdoms of the world. And he will try to fulfill the destiny that Hitler tried to fulfill. And he will use similar teachings to the ones that the Fool Society used. Here is one more look at this belief system. Let's return to the documentary, Blood Sacrifice, Occult Secrets of Adolf Hitler. The societies that taught Ariosophy long before the rise of Hitler come with a great deal of controversy. Some of the organizations include the Tool Society and the Vril, the German Orden and the Armanen League. I don't think Hitler, when Hitler came to power, or no, with, when he started his drive to power in the 1920s, he could not have gained the traction among the German people that he gained had they not been pre prepared for the previous 40 years. Hitler didn't come on the scene and start preaching and teaching Blavatsky's doctrines and convert an entire nation. That wasn't what happened at all. There were other organizations that existed back in the 19th century even that brought this idea to the forefront so the German people were well prepared for an Aryan Messiah to come because they'd been taught Ariosophy for a long time. The Tool Society, Tool, the northernmost land discovered by Pythus. Tool, like Atlantis, was an island that disappeared in the northern Atlantic. Rudolf von Schabottendorf, an important figure in the activities of the Tool Society, a practitioner of meditation, astrology, numerology, and alchemy. The inner core of the members of the Tool Society were nothing more than black magic Satanists. Now, we're not talking about Wiccans. We're not talking about white magic witches here. We're talking about black magic worshipers of Lucifer. The inner core of the Tool Society was an amalgam of Eastern religion, theosophy, anti-Semitism, grail romance, and Nordic paganism, all which formed the philosophy of the Tool Society. In 1918, the Tool had 1,500 members in Bavaria. The members of the Tool Society believed that the lost civilization of the Teutons had possessed psychic abilities that were far beyond the technical achievements of the 20th century. They hoped to rediscover the secrets of this legendary civilization through occult practices. Here again, we see that they sought to discover the secrets of a lost civilization through occult practices, a society that held the secret of meditation, astrology, numerology, and alchemy. Once again, it's always about reestablishing this lost kingdom and unifying all the earth under the leadership of Lucifer. You see, when we understand this fact, the whole Bible begins to make sense to us. A framework for interpretation is literally set before our eyes. The Bible is basically an account of the battle fought between the kingdoms of Lucifer and the kingdom of Yahweh throughout history. And the teachings of the Bible are there is a manual upon how we should act as citizens of Yahweh's kingdom. And it also teaches us about the authority that we possess as ambassadors of light. 
but it also serves as a warning of what will happen to those who are part of the kingdom of darkness. You see, Yeshua pleads with them to switch their allegiances and to defect from the devil's rulership. So when you are reading the Bible and you get stuck because you have a question about what something means, ask yourself, does it fall into one of the categories I just mentioned? And nine times out of ten, it will clear up the confusion because you will have a point of reference upon what everything means. Now do you understand why Satan wants to keep his kingdom of darkness a secret? Why he wants us to shy away from such controversial topics? Next, we will connect the last few dots and see if the founding of a fourth Reich and Satan's desire for a counterfeit millennial kingdom is one step closer to completion. But first, let's take another break. question about Bible prophecy? We will be devoting future podcasts and blog posts to answering them. For a chance to have your question answered, go to OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled, Ask a Question. Now, while Helena Blavatsky was breathing new life into the lost city of Atlantis, revealing the origin of the ones behind this lost kingdom, another society had the other piece of the Atlantis puzzle and had set about restoring it to power once again. Here is a clip from a documentary entitled Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings. And it's an interesting documentary that explains the meanings behind the Masonic symbols found all over our nation. And if you're interested in this subject, I would also highly recommend a book entitled The Secrets of Masonic Washington, a guidebook to signs, symbols, and ceremonies at the origin of America's capital by James Wasserman. And what's cool about this book is that it's written by an actual active high-level mason who candidly talks about these symbols. And I've linked both of these resources in the show notes. Now let's learn more about this new Atlantis. Some even suggest that Atlantis was really the antediluvian world, the wicked society destroyed by the wrath of God in the great flood of Noah. In the 20th century, Plato's account was further supported by Masonic philosopher Manly P. Hall. Hall claimed that Atlantis had once been a vast and mighty empire that extended to the whole world, a philosophic commonwealth of nations that one day was destined to be rebuilt. But who would rebuild it? And exactly who was Manly P. Hall? Manly P. Hall was probably the most highly esteemed occultist and Freemason of the 20th century. Uh, he uh, understood the secrets of the ages long before he ever joined the Masons. was really the foremost authority on the occultist side of Freemasonry, the deep, dark uh, side of Freemasonry, the one that most Masons never ascend to. I can't really think of anybody close to him. Manny P. Hall was the, one of the leading of people within this whole other world that we talk about. Paul authored over 200 books 
and is said to have given some 8,000 lectures on ancient philosophy. He is perhaps most remembered for his contribution to the mysterious brotherhood of masonry. Upon his death in 1990, the Scottish Rite Journal, a Masonic publication, noted that he was often called, quote, masonry's greatest philosopher. Among his teachings was that contained in masonry and all the secret orders was the ancient wisdom of lost Atlantis. Paul wrote that for more than 3,000 years, secret societies had been laboring to create a background of knowledge necessary to the establishment of an enlightened democracy among the nations of the world. According to Hall, these societies could be traced back to ancient Egypt and had for centuries known of a secret place hidden from the eyes of common men, a place that would one day be revealed. In the 17th century, as settlers were colonizing the New World, Sir Francis Bacon, the leader of secret societies in England, set down his classic work, The New Atlantis. While archaeologists and treasure hunters have searched the globe looking for the lost continent, 400 years ago, Bacon, like many of his contemporaries, believed that Atlantis was America itself. Now, Albert Pike, a 33-degree Freemason and author of Morals and Dogma, writes this, quote, That which we must say to the crowd is, we worship a god. But it is the God that one adores without superstition. To you, Sovereign Grand Inspector General, we say this, that you may repeat it to the brethren of the 32nd, 31st, and 30th degrees. The Masonic religion should be, by all of us initiates in the highest degrees, maintained in the purity of the Luciferian doctrine. Unquote. Now, you see, most Masons are kind, generous people who are involved in Masonry because of all the charity work that they do. And most of them will never know these secret doctrines until they reach the 30th degree when these things are revealed to them. Now, Manly P. Hall writes in The Lost Keys of Freemasonry this, quote, When the Mason learns that the key to the warrior on the block is the proper application of the dynamo of living power, he has learned the mysteries of his craft. The seething energy of Lucifer is in his hands. And before he may step forward, onward, and upward, he must prove his ability to properly apply that energy. Unquote. And in his book, The Secret Teachings of All the Ages, he shows how one can make a blood pact with Lucifer. Quote, I hereby promise the great spirit Lucifer, prince of demons, that each year I will bring unto him a human soul to do with it as it may please him. And in return, Lucifer promises to bestow upon me the treasures of the earth and fulfill my every desire for the length of my natural life. 
Unquote. Now you see, these occultists are waiting for the enthronement of Lucifer. They are awaiting the arrival of Lucifer to manifest itself in the form of Nero's mystery Babylon. As a matter of fact, most of their symbols are Babylonian in nature, none more clearly seen as the seal of the United States on the back of our dollar bill. It reads a new order of the ages, and it features a pyramid without its headstone. And that headstone is floating above the pyramid, and it contains the Eye of Horus, who we learned earlier was another name for Nimrod. And the pyramid is seated upon the grass, and behind the pyramid is a wasteland of nothingness. And when you put all these elements together, you get this Masonic narrative. The desert will turn into a new Garden of Eden when the new order of the ages is established. This will happen when Lucifer gives his power to a modern-day Nimrod, and then he will unite the headstone with the pyramid when he is enthroned in power. America has indeed become the new Atlantis, and on its own soil sits the UN, the seat of global government. And the land that it sits on was donated by the Rockefellers. The very same Rockefellers who we heard in the first clip poured millions into the Nazi party and its eugenics program. Now the UN is the ideal seat of power for the eighth God King to rule from because he is one who is a leader of both a spiritual and political empire. And make no mistake, there will be a price to be paid once this new Reich is established. David Spangler, director of the United Nations Planetary Initiative, has said, quote, No one will enter the New World Order unless he or she make a pledge to worship Lucifer. No one will enter the New Age unless he takes a Luciferian initiation. Unquote. Now, Robert Mueller was an assistant secretary general of the UN for 40 years, and he is best known as the philosopher of the United Nations. And he once wrote, if Christ came back to earth, his first visit would be to the United Nations to see if his dream of human oneness and brotherhood had come true. You see, the UN has a dark spiritual side to it, and one that has its roots in the same one who influenced the seventh God King, which are the teachings of Helena Blavatsky and her disciple, Alice C. Bailey. Next, we will be taking a look at the spiritual roots of the UN as described by Robert Mueller in a lecture by Professor Walter Veith, who was a professor at the University of Cape Town. He is also a researcher and an historian. Now, these next few clips will come from his lecture entitled, The UN and the Occult Agenda. Now, let's have a look at this man, Robert Miller. There he is, Dr. Robert Miller, former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations, Chancellor of the United Nations University of Peace, and he's chairperson of the Peace Party 2000. He's a very prominent man. What does he write? Robert Miller. Decide to open yourself to God, to the universe, to all your brethren and sisters, to your inner self to the potential of the human race, to the infinity of your inner self, and you will become the universe. You will become infinity, and you will at long last, your, you will be at long last your real, divine, stupendous self. 
Then you have the same philosophy. So what is he saying? That we can become gods. All right? So that is the mover and the shaker of the philosophy of the United Nations. Robert Miller writes in World Core Curriculum the following. Now, this is stunning. The underlying philosophy upon which the Robert Miller School is based will be found in the teachings set forth in the books of Alice A. Bailey. Hello? The books of Alice A. Bailey were published originally by Lucifer Publishing Company, which, because of all the flack, they changed to Lucifer's Trust. Isn't that correct? The school is now certified as a United Nations Associated School providing education for international cooperation and peace. Okay, this is big business. So the philosophy is based on Luciferian channeled writings preparing for the coming of Lucifer. And remember what they said. They were quite open about it. Alice A. Bailey claimed, evidence of the growth of human intellect along the needed receptive lines for the preparation of the new age can be seen in the planning of various nations and in the efforts of the United Nations to formulate a world plan. From the very start of this enfoldment, three occult factors have governed the development of all these plans. Now, can you see why I call the lecture the UN and the occult agenda? Because Alice A. Bailey says there were three occult plans and Robert Miller says, yes, we follow the writings of Alice A. Bailey. She did not spell them out, but she did state, within the United Nations is a germ and seed of a great international and meditating reflective group, a group of thinking and informed men and women in whose hands lies the destiny of humanity. Ooh. This is largely under the control of many fourth-ray disciples, if you could but realize it, and their point of meditative focus is the intuitional or buddhic plane, the plane upon which all hierarchical activity is today to be found. That's about as occult as you can get. What she is saying is that the inner core of the United Nations is controlled by people who are under the control of Lucifer. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, founder of Theosophy. She was the forerunner, of course, of the Bailey books. And Theosophy was then taken over by Annie Ward Passant over here, and then taken over by Alice A. Bailey. Now notice the chain of succession. Helena Blavatsky goes to Alice C. Bailey, who inspires Robert Mueller, who sets the world core curriculum for the education of children to help indoctrinate the children to these occult doctrines. Now, these occult teachings are preparing a subtle foundation for a new generation to receive the Antichrist, just like they once did with Hitler. But Alice C. Bailey wasn't the only one that inspired Robert Mueller. He was inspired by a Jesuit priest, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. The Undersecretary General of the United Nations, who is today entrusted with the spiritual aspects of the United Nations, plus its education program, says he's influenced by Teilhard de Chardin. And Robert Miller writes, most of all, they taught me happiness, his work. He says, any Teilhardian will recognize in this the spiritual transcendence, which he announced so emphatically as the next step 
in our evolution. So there's going to be a spiritual transcendence from what appears to be political over to the spiritual. All right, we've already seen in a previous lecture that he was a French Jesuit priest, a eugenist, a Marxist, a pantheist, a evolutionist. He might have even been involved in the Piltdown hoax. He was a humanist and the proponent of a one-world government, and he's the father of the New Age. So he's a very prominent man, seems to have been very busy. He dreamed of humanity merging into God and each realizing his own godhood at the Omega point. This belief has inspired many of the New Age leaders. In fact, Chardin is one of the most frequently quoted writers by leading New Age occultists. And uh, here are a few of his quotes. It is a law of the universe that in all things there is prior existence. Before every form there is a prior but lesser evolved form. Each one of us is evolving towards Godhead. So we are all becoming God. Wonderful philosophy. What I'm proposing to do is to narrow that gap between pantheism and Christianity by bringing out what one might call the Christian soul of pantheism or the pantheist aspect of Christianity. That's fascinating. So God is in everything. God is not a separate entity. We ourselves are God or part of God. If you are a pantheist, that's what you believe. I can be saved only by becoming one with the universe. That's pantheism. It's also the philosophy of Buddhism. I believe the Messiah whom we await, whom we all without any doubt await, is the universal Christ, that is to say the Christ of evolution. So this New Age Jesuit priest, who many call the father of the New Age, believes in a one-world religion made up of all of God's children, Christian pantheism, which is the foundation of the green gospel that teaches we are one with the universe and one with nature. And he also believes in the Christ of evolution. The Christ of evolution. Where have I heard that before? I mean, this kind of sounds like Jesuit Pope Francis. When a pope changes his name, he can pick from any Catholic name that has a certain meaning to him. And he chooses that name very carefully. Now, the new pope chose Francis after Francis of Assisi, a Jesuit priest. And many thought that it was because he wanted to represent the poor. But there is another reason that very few people have connected the dots to. Because Francis, this is Francis of Assisi, connected with nature, Pope John Paul II named him the patron saint of ecology. Now, St. Francis was the roommate of Ignatius Loyola, the Jesuit founder, just for interest's sake. Also, occultist Robert Miller, that's now the Undersecretary General of the United Nations, former one, informs us that Francis has been declared patron saint of the United Nations. Now, is it a coincidence that Pope Francis is the first pope to come into power after a pope resigns since 1415? And do you think it's a coincidence that he is the first ever Jesuit pope? Or is it a coincidence that he chose to be named after the patron saint of the environment? Or is it a coincidence that he chose to be named after the saint of the UN? Now, right now, he is gathering support from all world religions for an encyclical on the environment and Mother Earth. And then he will be received by the UN Assembly to speak on the environmental movement 
later this year. And for more about the dangers of the environmental movement, check out podcast episode 15 entitled The Doomsday Clock. And if you're interested in finding out about the Secret Society of the Jesuits and how they tie into the One World Government, I've included a link to a documentary on that also in the show notes. Now, the other part of the UN is the political power that it affords the one who is in control of it. Now, let's have a look at some of the historic figures of the United Nations. Al Gahis, he became the acting secretary general of the establishment of the United Nations. The April 16, 1945 issue of Time magazine called him one of the State Department's brighter young men. It was his and Joseph E. Johnson, who later became secretary of the Bilderbergers, so here we have all the secret societies again, who wrote much of the United Nations Charter. So very high Freemasons, Bilderbergers, were responsible for this charter. Patterning it after the Constitution of Russia and the Communist Manifesto. This is very interesting. So the Constitution of the USSR is almost identical to the Constitution of the United Nations. Now, the U.N. is full of secretary generals who are socialists. As a matter of fact, Kurt Waldheim, the fourth secretary general, was even a Nazi who served in the German army. Now, America is a capitalist country, but it was still one of the founding members of the United Nations, even though the policies of the U.N. are blatantly socialist. So why would the United States sign a charter that so obviously is against their own philosophy? The answer is actually very simple. If you look at the Hegelian principle, it states that opposing ideas set against each other tend to find a synthesis between the two over time. Now you be the judge if this has happened yet. In 1848, Karl Marx wrote the 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto, and they are as follows. Number one, abolition of private property and land, the application of all rents of the land to public purpose. Number two, a heavy progressive income tax. Number three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Number four, confiscation of the property of all rebels. Number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Number six, centralization of all means of communication and transportation in the hands of the state. Seven, extension of factories and instruments of production will now be owned by the state. Number eight, equal obligation of all to work, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Number nine, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country. Number 10, free education for all children in government schools. Now, how can anyone say that America has not become a neo-socialist nation over time? We're selling our freedoms and our rights off piece by piece, giving up our sovereignty one inch at a time. And sooner or later, 
we will run out of inches to give. And all it will take for this to happen is the right set of circumstances. Hitler rose to true power after an arson attack on the Reichstag building. And this act of terrorism caused a national panic. Now, the day after the fire, Hitler asked for and received from President Hindenburg the Reichstag Fire Decree. The Reichstag Fire Decree suspended most civil liberties in Germany and was used by the Nazis to ban publications not considered friendly to Nazi causes. Now, the Hegelian principle also states that one must create a pain of turmoil that far outweighs the pain of unity, and then the people will choose the less painful path. And it won't be long until we become nothing more than a number, branded like those in Nazi Germany. Here is a clip by Aaron Russo, a film director, political activist, and a confidant to the Rockefellers. The whole, the, the whole agenda is to create a one-world government where everybody has an, R, R, an RFID chip implanted in them. All money is to be um, in those chips, right? There'll be no more cash. And this is giving me straight from Rockefeller himself. This is what they want to accomplish. And all money will be in your chips. And so, any, so not, instead of having cash... Anytime you have money in your, in, your, in your chip, they can take out whatever they want to take out whenever they want to. If they say you owe us this much money in taxes, they just deduct it out of your chip digitally. Total control. Total control. And if you're like me or you, and you're protesting what they're doing, they can just turn off your chip. And you have nothing. You can't buy food. You can't do anything. It's total control of the people. And that chip's connected to a database that has your purchasing records, what you do, what everything, you sell. Everything is in there, you know? And so they, they want a one-world government controlled by them, everybody being chipped, all your money in those chips, and they control the chips. And the sad thing is, is that most of the world will be lining up to implant such a device because of how it's being marketed to us. And it seems that new, quote-unquote, benefits are being discovered and promoted all the time. Recently, Hip and Cool MTV had this article on their website entitled, Microchip and Male Birth Control, Here's the Exciting Future of Contraception. Preclinical testing will begin this year on a small implantable microchip that dispenses a hormone that will be effective for up to 16 years. Yeah, how exciting. Like that won't get abused. I mean, have we really learned anything from Holocaust Remembrance Day? Have we learned that the Third Reich didn't just happen as we awoke one morning, but that it was systematically implemented? And now the eighth mystery king is about to rise and finish Lucifer's master plan that was delayed at the Tower of Babel. Can there be any doubt that we are living in the last days, that time is running out, and these are truly the days? days of Noah. Because when I think about it, how all of this ties together from the beginning of Babylon up until this point now in history, and how the Bible predicted everything intricately, it just blows my mind. And it makes me say, Yeshua is surely coming. Romans 13.11 says, And that knowing the time, that it is high time to awake out of our sleep, for now the day of salvation is nearer than we first 
believed. And our salvation is growing near. Because if there is a kingdom of darkness, let me tell you something. There's a kingdom of light. If there's a kingdom of Satan, then there's a kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of darkness says, I will provide for you. Trust our government to supply all your needs. But it will cost you your soul and the loss of your freedom. But the kingdom of God says, trust God. And then all these things will be added unto you. Now, the kingdom of God will also cost you your soul, but you will find freedom and not lose it when you find God. And instead of chains, you will find a white robe of glory. Philippians 14, 19 says this, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in the glory of Yeshua the Messiah. You see, when you become a citizen of this heavenly kingdom, you become the responsibility of our heavenly king. And let me tell you something, his glorious provisions never run dry. The Bible says that he watches over the sparrow, that he counts the numbers of the very hairs upon our head, and he will supply all of our needs, but he will not supply our greeds. The kingdom of darkness and those who rule over it are driven by greed, and they don't care how many people they have to kill to achieve their desires, to bring them riches, fame, and power, or an earthly throne. Or we can choose to be content with what Yeshua lovingly provides. We can choose to live in the place of surrender to his purpose and his plan. We can live in a realm that heals people and never kills them. A realm that brings life to where there is death. To gain a heavenly kingdom. To store up riches in heaven where there is no decay. To be in that millennial kingdom, ruling in partnership with Yeshua for a thousand years to be his bride. And there is coming a day where there will be a wedding feast like none other. Are you prepared? Are you truly ready for that day? Revelations 19, 7 says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, I have performed wedding ceremonies, and I can tell you that when the day of that wedding comes, the place where the ceremony is being held is prepared ahead of time. There are flowers everywhere. All the seating is just right. Ushers are helping everyone find a place. There's a white runner on the carpet leading up to the altar. The cameras are set up at just the right angles. All the lighting is just right, and everything is prepared to capture this once-in-a-lifetime moment. And the bridegroom. He stands at the front, and then the music plays. And everyone turns around to see that bride come down the aisle, and she is presented to that groom. Now, I've never seen a bride come down that aisle in sweatpants and tennis shoes. Now, she has been made up. Her hair has been fixed. She is wearing a dress that she bought months in advance, a dress that had to be just right. She has made all the alterations. She has lost weight to fit into that dress. She wants to be beautiful. But let me tell you something. There is coming a greater wedding because there will be a wedding day for the bride of Yeshua. A day where that heavenly music will play, where the trumpet of God will sound and the living and the dead in Christ shall rise up to heaven and all of the angels in the halls of heaven will turn and look as we are presented to Yeshua by our heavenly father. 
So are we prepared? Have we made ourselves ready? Have we been clothed in our white wedding garments? Are they without spot and wrinkle? Have we prepared in advance? Have we been disciplined? Have we even fasted to fit in that dress? Have we made the alterations to our lives that please God? Have we made ourselves ready? Because I believe that heaven is in the last stages of that preparation. The candles have been lit. The flowers have been placed out. The white runner is being unrolled down the aisle. That angel is picking up that shofar and soon and very soon it will be played. So let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. Thank you for downloading this week's podcast. May Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. As this week's episode draws to a close, I want to share with you how you can become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because if you desire freedom from this world's system of slavery to sin, there is hope. The gospel, or the good news of the kingdom, is that through repentance and the finished work of Christ that's revealed to us in his death, burial, and resurrection, there is redemption. There is restoration. There is a freedom offered to us by God to each and every person who would receive Christ as the king of this kingdom. It says this in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Today can be your day. In this moment right now, you can choose to serve King Jesus and surrender your life to him. You can switch your allegiances. You can turn from the kingdom of darkness and begin to walk in the newness of life. And that new life, it can only come as the result of a supernatural work by the Holy Spirit. You see, salvation and repentance... It's a supernatural act. It's something that God gives to us. And it's only possible because of His grace. No one can repent unless God grants that repentance. John 6.44 tells us that no man can come unto Jesus except the Father which sent Jesus draws him by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to our sinful condition. He births godly sorrow within us over our sins, and He allows us to see sin as God sees it. And it's this insight that brings a supernatural desire to change our hearts, to take that first step in a new direction away from the sin that's destroying us and into the liberty that frees us. So if you feel the urging of the Holy Spirit to obey the call of the gospel and enter into the new covenant 
of a relationship with the one and only true God of the universe through the blood of Christ, then please accept the invitation that it gives to you in Isaiah 1.18 where he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, one way you could do this, one way you could reason with God would be to prayerfully examine Exodus chapter 20 and read for yourself God's standard of perfection. Let them serve as an honest guide to the state of your life. Do a moral inventory of your life and then simply and honestly ask the Holy Spirit to show you the things in your life that don't line up with that standard. Ask Him to soften your heart so that you can begin to see your sin as God sees it. Ask Him to literally trouble your heart with godly sorrow over the times that you broke the laws of God. When that happens, soon you will realize that Romans 3.23 is true when it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if Romans 3.23 is true, that also means that Romans 5 verse 8 must also be true. And it says this, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to save you from your sins. And you can ask the Holy Spirit to give you the faith and the supernatural strength in this moment to call upon Jesus to save you from your sins. Now just do that from the honesty of your own heart. In your own words, begin to call out to Jesus to save you. Lay down your old life and put on his new life instead. And realize that in Christ, through his blood, you can boldly approach the throne of grace and find the peace that passes all understanding, knowing that the Father sees the sacrifice of his Son where your sins used to be. Now, if I can help you further, either by talking with you more about the covenant of salvation that was paid for by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or if I can encourage you to take the next step in living a sold-out, radical kingdom life for Him, please visit OmegaFrequency.com and click on the navigational link entitled Salvation. From there, you're going to find a button that says, Please help me take the next step. And if you use it, I'll be able to communicate with you specifically about this matter. Well, as always, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to download this week's episode. It has been my honor to be able to spend time with you this week and discuss the things of Christ and His kingdom with you. Until next time, may Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with someone else. New episodes of Omega Frequency air on Mondays. And if you subscribe to us in iTunes, you'll never miss an episode. Our full podcast archives of previously aired shows, along with their original show notes, can be found online at omegafrequency.com. And we are also blessed to be part of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Please visit fourthwatchradio.com today 
and check out a wide variety of episodes that cover paranormal and prophetic topics from a biblical perspective. Now, until next time, this is BDK reminding you that we don't need to fear the future because in the end, Yeshua wins.